Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Welcome everyone uh, back to our MTC ISH podcast. And today in our uh, podcast, we will speak to Professor Ed Sturrock, who is a full professor in the Department of Integrative Biomedical Sciences and a founding member of the Institute of Infectious Diseases and Molecular Medicine at the University of Cape Town. Ed's scientific work started on the synthesis and metabolism of bilirubin, and after a postdoctoral fellowship uh, at Harvard Medical School, he started his research on angiotensin-converting enzyme, ACE. Now his research portfolio includes structure function aspects of zinc metalloproteases, cardiovascular drug discovery, and the mechanism of fibrosing pericarditis in tuberculosis. Ed has made significant contributions to the national and international scientific communities, where he's a fellow and long-standing council member of the International of the Royal Society of South Africa, a fellow of the University of Cape Town member of the Academy of Science of South Africa, and a visiting professor at the University of Bath. Ed has published over 130 papers in highly regarded journals and has four patents. And together with his colleagues from the UK and the US, Ed founded Angel Design, which is a, a spin-out company that focuses on the rational design of enhanced next-generation drugs for proven disease targets. ACE and Neprilysin. With that, I'm so excited to welcome you Ed, to our podcast, and thank you very much for taking the time during your sabbatical to be here with us and sharing your experiences with us. Thank you, and it's a, it's a, it really is a great pleasure. So Ed, just like to get us started, can you tell us a little bit more of your story and how did you get involved with like hypertension, cardiovascular research, and uh, ISH? Right, well, as um, you've indicated, uh, Guta, I really started working on the structure and function of angiotensin-converting enzyme during a, a postdoc fellowship at Harvard with uh, Jim Reardon, who was a, an outstanding scientist and, and an excellent mentor as well. Uh, and then on my return to Cape Town in 97, I was awarded a Wellcome Trust uh, Senior Research Fellowship that really helped me to establish my independent research group in the Department of Medical Biochemistry at the University of Cape Town. And then in collaboration with a, a good friend and a collaborator, Ravi Acharya at the University of, of Bath, we published our work on the first crystal structure of ACE in 2003. And this really paved the way for um, the development of a, a new class of ACE inhibitors uh, that was selective for the N or the C-terminal catalytic sites of the enzyme. Um, and this led to a wonderful collaboration with uh, Professor Rian Toys and uh, many people in, in her group investigating the efficacy of a C-selective ACE inhibitor uh, in, a, in a very cool uh, mass model for hypertension. 
And so in terms of my introduction to the, the ISH, this was, was largely through Rian Toys and the late uh, Lionel Opie, uh, both outstanding mentors and uh, leaders in the field of hypertension. So that's really just a, a sort of brief outline of, of my story and uh, introduction to the ISH. So Ed, I, as you can see from your bio, like you contributed a lot to uh, international and national societies. And how do you think that participating in committees or in these societies helped you to advance your career? Uh, thanks, uh, Guta. So I think it's a well-established uh, fact that um, committee meetings can be a waste of time if they're not uh, properly prepared for or if they are uh, poorly managed. And um, committee members quickly recognize this and can be less than cooperative, resulting in uh, failing to meet the desired goals for uh, that committee. And so I've been quite selective in respect of my committee involvement, and not just from a selfish point of view, but in terms of what value I can bring to the committee, uh, what time requirements are involved, and then how effective the committee is in actually carrying out the mission of the uh, society or the organization. So um, in terms of your question about how my participation in professional societies, uh, committees has helped to advance my career. I think this is, has been more of a sort of indirect or knock-on effect and that my participation uh, in these committees has connected me with key scientists and collaborators who have impacted my research um, my research outputs, and that this in turn has helped to advance my uh, career. So, and now talking a little bit about your mentorship experience, uh, if you can, if you could define that in one word, which word would you use? That's a difficult question, Guta, but I think I would use the word uh, communication, and then I would uh, I would hurriedly add in the word trust as well. So uh, I think that because it's difficult to have good communication without trust, and so open and supportive communication, and really creating a relationship of of trust um, and. For me, uh, that really defines uh, mentorship in a, a nutshell, maybe not one word, but... Uh... <laughs> do, do you think that mentoring is important? Um, no, I think it's essential. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's really life-changing and critical for personal and, and often uh, professional growth. So, um, yeah, I, I really think that men mentoring is not just uh, an add-on or, um, uh, you know, something that 
um, one can do if one feels in the mood for it. I, th I think that this really is a critical component of uh, you know career development um, for young and mid-career scientists. And and like in your career, when did you realize that you needed a mentor? So I don't think that that realization actually ever sort of dawned on me, but I think if I had to pinpoint um, a time or, or period, it would probably be during my uh, postgraduate studies. And uh, Guta, I mean, I was really very privileged to have supervisors, colleagues and friends who were either there for me or drew alongside me when I needed uh, support, guidance and help getting into the position where the ice hockey puck is going to be. And I quite like that expression. I, I read it in a book recently, and uh, it was actually a quote from Wayne Gretzky, the, the famous uh, Canadian ice hockey player of the 80s and the 90s. And when Wayne Gretzky was actually asked what was the secret of his uh, success, he answered, I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. And so we can't always help mentees to be where the ice hockey puck is going to be all the time. But I think there, there are definitely certain sort of strategic moments where helping them uh, to get into that position at a specific time makes a huge difference in terms of their um, career development. And Ed, if you don't, if you don't mind me uh, adding uh, a curiosity here, because uh, a lot of people nowadays, they are always considering whether they should stay in academia or switch to more like industry-like jobs. And I think like you have an experience when you um, put together undo uh, design. So how was the process to you? Like, did any mentorship play a role in, in that process? Like, how, how was for you to transition and flirt with both uh, words, let's say? Well, that's, that's a very good question. And I'm not sure whether you want the two hour or the two minute version. <laughs> <laughs> But um, certainly, I, I did have mentors, um, uh, colleagues, and, and collaborators who um, I discussed this with in, in, um, in, in science and academia, as well as in, in industry and, and people who are more involved in, in investment. And... Uh, I think it's interesting you describe this as a flirtation. It, 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 because it has been that in a way. I've been sort of juggling a, a you know, career in academia, uh, and at the same time, I've uh, been pursuing this uh, spin art uh, in the evenings and at nights, and been, I, I guess, fortunate that we've been able to contract a lot of the work in to my research group and uh, to collaborators groups. So, you know, that, that has worked very well. Um, 
but I think it also depends a lot on the environment that one is in. And, you know, there are certain uh, institutions um, in cities where there are um, spin out uh, uh, business parks and accelerators where it's a lot easier to um, translate and, and spin out some of the work into a, a company. In Cape Town, it's, it's a lot more challenging. And we uh, first incorporated a, a company in the US, in Delaware, and then in Cape Town. Uh, and then we got some angel investment uh, in the UK and moved uh, the company to, to the UK. <laughs> so it's, it's been quite a learning curve in terms of, uh, you know, how to manage and um, administrate a company and how to, to manage the, the IP and uh, keep, keep the show on the road. Perfect, thank you. Thank you, Ed, for the in-between time uh, answer for that question. Um, so, Ed, like when you think about your uh, mentoring style, because now you have uh, mentored and supervised many people, uh, what, what will be your mentoring style? And if you can give us any examples, please do uh, give us. So, um, Guta, I don't uh, think I have a specific mentoring style. I think that mentoring uh, styles really do vary to cater for different personality types and learning styles as well. However, if I you know, consider the way I interact with my mentees, I would uh, describe my styles as, as facilitating, uh, supporting, challenging, um, and connecting. And um, your question about how I have um, helped mentees is a good one, as very often I think the way in which we think we help mentees and the way we actually help them are very different. And um, I mean, just aside for my uh, 60th birthday, a colleague made a short speech and she had asked a number of my past graduate students and postdocs to write a short, uh, write a few words just about how I'd impacted their lives. And it was uh, very humbling to listen to ways I, in which I'd helped uh, my mentees over the years. And these included amongst others, supporting, um, enabling, challenging, connecting and uh, above uh, all else having a, a sense of humor as well and add um in order to take advantage of this relationship with a mentor and ensure that it is a win-win uh, mm -hmm. situation what kind of uh, traits do you think a mentee should have well a lot of I think a lot of the traits of a good mentee are similar to the traits of a good mentor. Uh, but I think there are a few differences. Uh, I think that firstly, it's important to really be clear about what you want from a mentor. What, what are your specific needs? And you know, what would you consider to be a successful outcome of the mentor-mentee uh, relationship? Um, and to have a clear idea of your own priorities, goals, and expectations. 
And then when meeting with uh, a potential mentor to keep it informal and discuss both your expectations, frequency of meetings. Um, and uh, I think this is, this is important in terms of setting the scene and making sure that uh, as a mentee, one gets the most out of the uh, relationship. And then I think it's also important to be open, uh, you know, to receive advice and criticism. Often, uh, you know, we, we find it difficult to, to receive um, constructive advice and criticism, but I think this is really key for a, a good mentee, to be open and to be willing to learn and to be trustworthy. I'm getting back to, to the word that I used right at the beginning. It, you know, for this relationship to work, there needs to be trust on behalf of the mentor and the mentee. Um, and then uh, for the mentee to be considerate to schedule meetings ahead of time and ready to, to value the mentor's time. Often mentors you know, have a very busy schedules and uh, they you know, are fitting uh, time in to, to work and, and discuss uh, things with the mentee. Um, and then I think to remember that as you progress, your needs will, will change. So, you know, this isn't a, a marriage for life and uh, that sometimes sooner rather than later, you need to move on and find a, a different mentor. Thanks. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And, and if your mentees come to you and they say like, it's time to, uh, for me to join another group, another lab and continue mm. with, with my career, what advice would give to them to help them to identify that in good environment? Right. So I think the key there is to do your uh, research on the training environment. You know, will it meet your specific needs in terms of what interests and uh, what excites you? and what will be best for your career development. Um, so check out the, the landscape beforehand. And uh, when I ran my first uh, ultra marathon, I know it's difficult to uh, believe that, <laughs> Not carrying this uh, extra weight now, but before I ran that uh, ultra marathon, I drove the route the day before and I was terrified um seeing these hills that i had to run up and run down uh but i knew where the major challenges were and i knew how to to pace myself so you know in terms of of pra practical pointers you know meet with the your future pi in person or preferably or via teams uh, visit the group you're intending to, to join if, if possible um, or speak to current and or former lab members to understand the strengths and weaknesses of the research group and environment. And, you know, I remember um, very, very clearly before uh, joining the group at Harvard, which certainly had its uh, challenges. <laughs> in terms of you know interesting and uh, difficult people uh, but sitting down with uh, somebody who had actually done a postdoc in the same lab 
uh, a few years before me and probably chatting for two or three hours. And by the end of it, you know, I had a crystal clear picture of, you know, the environment that I was going into, the people, um, you know, how I should approach different people, the, the strengths and, and the weaknesses of the group. And, uh, you know, that really made a huge difference in terms of um, giving me the assurance that it was the right place, uh, as well as equipping me to move into an environment like that and, and really sort of hit the ground running. And uh, I think like throughout your career, like, uh, you know, you probably had to face uh, situations where people uh, may look a little intimidating right. or it caused you to kind of like, you know, had to get yourself together and put yourself forward the best way possible. And I think many of the people that listen to our podcast go through those situations, a job interview or trying to talk to someone to get a, a job in a conference. So what do you do in order to put yourself together and be able to sell the best version of ads? Okay. So I think, uh, I mean, you know, if one thinks about that uh, question, I think it's, it's important to realize that we all compare ourselves to others. Um, and uh, because we get a, a feeling of safety and security when we, we kind of know we're on a similar footing as someone else. And in this uh, context, um, intimidation is essentially just feeling that somebody is much bigger and better than us. And much of, of handling intimidating uh, people thus lies in, in stopping that comparison or actually reassuring ourselves that we've got uh, plenty of points in our favor. And, and so just in terms of practicalities, I think we need to remind ourselves that there's really no such thing as an equal footing. It's just a different footing. You and the person that might be intimidating cannot possibly have the exact same skills, personality, background, goals, etc. cetera. Um, and, and so thus you cannot make an accurate apples to apples assessment of, of who is best. And so we need to tell ourselves that for all the other person's accomplishments or abilities, they're human, that everyone makes uh, mistakes. And it's just that, uh, you know, you might not be aware of all of, of their uh, mistakes and shortfalls. And then maybe before meeting a person that you find intimidating to review your own accomplishments or positive qualities and to confirm your abilities and right to uh, personal confidence. And then to think about people who made you feel competent and special. So this is again, sort of reaffirming oneself, the positive memory, memories that can, can then decrease uh, your stress as you meet with somebody like that. And, and then I think finally, just to remind yourself that in the age of social media and ultra competitiveness, the person who intimidates you might not be showing their real self. So if you really get to, to know them, and, and there's not always that opportunity, but if you are able to get to know them a, a bit better, 
they might be much warmer than you initially give them credit for. And so one needs to kind of commit to talking to them uh, with the aim of, of finding out a little bit more um, about their story. And it's, and it's true, and I, I totally relate to many to your advice, Ed, because I remember once being nervous for uh, a presentation uh, in the early beginnings for me, and uh, I did think about Rianne one day, like saying like, oh, look, you did a good job in the conference, and that actually helped me to calm down a little bit, but it helped me to, uh, to put myself together. So thank yes. you, like, great advice. So, Ed, now switching to uh, our favorite talk, one of our favorite topics, diversity and inclusion, which I think are big issues and big themes uh, at the moment. Right. Um, what do you think is the biggest barrier around diversity and inclusion uh, in uh, research? Right. Um, thanks, Guto. So that's a, a good and often uh, difficult question. But um, I, I think probably um, unconscious bias is, is one of the uh, biggest barriers to um, workplace inclusion and diversity. And this um, means that we automatically have a preference or affinity to those who are similar to us. And this could be in terms of race, gender, um, or sexual orientation. And I believe that this automatic stereotyping or judging uh, is really one of the, the biggest barriers that you know, we need to, to confront. And then I think there, there are obviously also practical barriers like uh, funding. You know, if we're going to address diversity and inclusion, uh, we need to find practical ways of, of uh, interacting with each other through workshops or seminars, often bringing in a, a speaker or facilitator, and then uh, tracking diversity and inclusion metrics. I think, you know, we've looked at this in our institute and often it's very difficult to find the right metrics, but I think it's really key if we want to move forward in terms of diversity and inclusion, that we can sort of see exactly where we are and you know, where we, we're moving to and how we're progressing over uh, you know, three or, or five years uh, or, or whatever. Um, so I think that, you know, that is important. Um, and then I think people need to understand the reasons behind these initiatives and you know, that they're not just a box ticking exercise. Uh, you know, it's very easy to, uh, for a director of an institute or a head of a site to, to, to make a sort of passionate plea for dealing with, with um, diversity in the next uh, term of office or whatever. But I think to get buy-in from the members, from the students, from the, the staff, one, one really needs to understand uh, the reason behind these initiatives um, and, and that, you know, that, that helps us to, um, to address them more effectively. And, and now focusing a little bit of, uh, on uh, the participation of women in research, 
do you have any advice for uh, women in not only hypertension research, but in research in general? So, um, good, I've got very simple advice. <laughs> and that, that is uh, to dream big, um, to be yourself and to believe in yourself. And, you know, if I just have to think of three, uh, you know, women ro role models, uh, two in, in uh, very active in the hypertension space and uh, another one or two, in our faculty, um, you know, they, they've been uh, incredible role models and uh, they've certainly dreamt big and believed in themselves and, and achieved, uh, you know, remarkable um, uh, accomplishments during their career. Perfect. Thank you, Ed. And just to uh, the last question for our WeChat today. Yeah. Um, so it's about COVID right. and how COVID uh, kind of like it, it managed to stop, not to stop, but to make uh, career progress for many uh, early career researchers or mid-career researchers a little harder than was already. So do you have any ideas of how us as a community, we can act together to help those uh how people in general that were uh affected by COVID-19 right yeah so hopefully we're we're sort of moving on and, and out of COVID but I think what uh you know these two or three years have taught us is that you know during difficult times often certain weaknesses are amplified and uh uh, certainly from my experience, um, my group and, and our institute really learned the importance of, um, you know, caring for ourselves, looking after ourselves and taking care of ourselves and looking after one another. Um, and, uh, of course, when one is meeting virtually, this is often different, difficult and and you know, one would move into a meeting, whether it's a lab meeting or a, uh, a larger group meeting and, uh, you know, just go through the agenda and in the meeting. And, you know, we learned quite quickly that people were having needs that they might have had before COVID and we needed to change and, and make sure we had meetings where we just um, had a, an opportunity to share with one another, uh, discuss needs, see if, if there were ways in which we could help each other uh, before, you know, moving on to, to discuss the, the business part of the, the meeting. So, um, yeah, I think it, it's, it's important that we kind of take what we've learned from uh, the the pandemic and particularly in terms of um, uh, how better to support our, our researchers and make sure that we implement those uh, going forward. You know, it's, it's very easy as we move out of the the pandemic and you know we don't have to wear masks anymore. We don't have to 
social distance and sanitize to sort of leave all that behind. Uh, but I, I think the most important lesson, as I say, is uh, learning that, you know, we, we are people and we have uh, needs and going forward, uh, we need to be more aware of um, uh, each other's needs, how we can work together um, and uh, work successfully and, and, and efficiently but in a, a caring and, and more compassionate way. Yeah, and I, and I agree with you. I think like we've seen uh, some cases of that, that people really step up and start helping and understand, well, helping each other and right. just giving a hand, right? Yes, so, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, we reached the end of uh, our chat, so I just wanted to finish by saying uh, thank you again for uh, your time and for you uh, being here with us. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, and I'm pretty sure people will be super happy to hear uh, your thoughts and your experiences. Well, thanks very much. I really enjoyed that, and as I said, I've been very fortunate to have uh, you know some special mentors and and uh, wonderful mentees as well in my life uh, so it, it really was a pleasure and a, a privilege chatting to you thank you for listening to our interview if you'd like more tips on mentoring subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders Stay safe, open-minded and kind.